Now, can we turn together uh, in our Bibles uh, to John chapter 11 at verse 55. And we're going to read uh, through chapter 12 uh, to verse 11, uh, thinking about uh, Jesus, uh, the anointed king. So again, let's hear the word of God. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Amen. Uh, so we're going to use uh, John chapter 12 uh, to prepare ourselves for Christmas and to reflect together uh, on Jesus as God's king. Uh, we are, I am sure, familiar with uh, nativity stories and, and with the words of the Bible that uh, wise men came uh, to visit the infant Jesus, bringing those gifts uh, fit for a king uh, led by God to honor him. Gifts to honor uh, someone. Uh, we understand that. Some cultures more than other. We were watching uh, a program, Paul Hollywood, uh, traveling around Japan uh, over the last couple of weeks and uh, he discovered that the culture they have there of of gift giving and especially uh, giving fruit, and if you are particularly wealthy, giving really expensive fruit uh, to honor uh, perhaps someone who's inviting you for dinner. So he went to a, a, a guy who grew strawberries, had grown them for decades, and uh, one single strawberry would set you back 350 pounds. A couple of melons that sold at auction for £35,000. Some cultures understand that, that gift giving is a way to honour someone. And what do we have here in the anointing of Mary? She gives extravagantly to honour King Jesus. Helps us to ask ourselves the question, what do our lives, what does our worship reveal about our love and honour for Jesus? And we'll think about that. Again, we go back to uh, those familiar nativity stories and uh, very much central to that are the groups who are for Jesus. 
There's always Mary and Joseph. There are always the shepherds, those first worshippers who receive the good news. There are the wise men who come. The Bible includes, but the nativity doesn't, figures like King Herod. You remember King Herod in, in Matthew 2. He he doesn't like the news that a new king has been born and he fears the loss of privilege and status. And so what does he do? He arranges for the murder of the infants in Bethlehem to try and destroy God's king. And that theme is here too in John 12. We see it all through John's gospel. A division, dividing lines drawn. Some will worship Jesus, some will believe in Jesus, but others will plot to arrest and destroy and to kill. It seems like there is no middle ground. Jesus' claims are so big, his power it is so evident. Some worship and some would kill. And when we take it back to ourselves, don't we see uh, that we live in a world that's very much divided over what to make of Jesus? We make it more personal. How does your heart, how does my heart respond to Jesus as God's king? Today we're going to uh, look at the anointing of Jesus. The anointing (coughs) that helps us to think about uh, Jesus as God's king, anointing symbolic of kingship. We're going to see what do we learn about Jesus as God's king uh, in uh, the Bible and think about the different responses that we have to Jesus the king here in John 12 to help us to think about our own response. (coughs) So let's think together about the anointing uh, of King Jesus. Uh, We're told uh, some important details. We're given the setting uh, here for observations. Uh, Verse 1, this happens six days before the Passover, the great worship festival for the people of God when they remembered the God who rescued by sacrifice. And from the very beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verse 29, we have John the Baptist declared of Jesus, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in God's perfect timing, it was always his plan that Jesus would die at Passover to remind us that God always rescues by sacrifice, ultimately by the sacrifice of his own son. So Passover is in the background. Also in the background, part of our setting, is the raising of Lazarus. Uh, So notice that Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The last of the seven great signs recorded in John's Gospel that we've just finished uh, looking at. And especially that last one where Jesus explicitly says, this is going to reveal the glory of God, where Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. And what do we have here at this dinner party, we have walking, talking, eating proof of that because here is Lazarus, one of the guests at this meal. And it's interesting to think that uh, a little while later, when Jesus himself is raised from the dead, we had the same lines of evidence given. Jesus meeting with individuals, Jesus being seen by crowds, Jesus eating with his disciples to prove he is real. What else do we have in terms of background? We discovered in verse 2 that in Bethany a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha's serving and Lazarus was among 
those reclinings. It's a, a village meal, most likely. It was quite common at the time for people to gather together. If, if an honored guest was coming into town, people would gather together, pool their resources, uh, and have a, a meal together. And um, so, at some level, this is an ordinary event. But then, as Mary takes that perfume and anoints Jesus, it becomes extraordinary. And again, we can't really miss, in terms of the setting for the anointing, the division uh, that we read about, the division that's clear uh, in John's Gospel. Now, notice, uh, in the words of the friends and the enemies of Jesus, nobody is denying the fact that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. He's right there with them. He's in the room. So nobody is denying that. They're all agreed on that, but but some choose to uh, to want to know more about Jesus and to believe and to worship. Others say, well, now we need to get rid of Lazarus as well as getting rid of Jesus. Their opposition is so great. Uh, they feel that threat to their position and to their security, and so they want to destroy both Jesus and Lazarus, who becomes a really powerful witness, despite virtue of his life. So that's the the setting, so we understand uh, what's going on, and this is just uh, a week before Jesus goes to the cross. Now, for the anointing itself, verse 3, let's read uh, again, verse 3, Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Let's just focus for now on the extravagance of this gift. Judas says this perfume was worth a year's wages. Put that in our terms, we're talking 15, 20, 25,000 pound bottle of perfume cracked open and gone seconds. Perhaps this family heirloom that's been passed down through the generations is opened and poured so as to anoint Jesus. And as the smell fills the house, we can imagine, can't we, the surprise for some, the shock of what's just happened spreads through the house also. And notice with me that Jesus approves of this. Jesus doesn't say, whoa, that's a big gift. I'm not worthy of that. Jesus approves of it. Verse 7, he says, leave her alone. It was intended she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Then in verse 8, you'll always have the poor among you, but you'll not always have me. Jesus says, I am worthy of this worship. Jesus isn't saying that he's against the poor or against ministry to the poor. And we see that all through his life. He spends so much time with the, the poor and the marginalized and the weak and the dispossessed. But he's saying very clearly to Mary and everyone who's ready to listen that this is an appropriate act. This is the right time for Mary to honor and to love her king, her king who is shortly going to die. And one of the themes that we've seen as we've been looking through John's gospel is that, that Jesus is unafraid of saying, I am equal with my father. I deserve the same honor and glory as God, my father. And so here, as he receives this act of extravagant worship, he is saying another time, I am worthy of this because I am the son of God. But he also, at the same time, doesn't he reveal something about his kingship? 
He says that this has been done to prepare for my burial. Jesus, as God's king, knows that he has come to die in the cross and, and his burial are very much on the horizon for him. Reminds us that all Jesus did and all that Jesus suffered, he did as a substitute, as he came under the law, becoming one of us in order to uh, completely obey the law that we break. He came as a substitute going under the curse, facing the penalty for that law that we have broken, though he was sinlessly perfect. Uh, He was willing to take the punishment that we deserve. He did that to save his people, and he does it as God's obedient, humble servant king. All that he is doing, all that he will do on the cross, he does to to show the glory of God, to show obedience to his Father, to satisfy God's justice, to demonstrate God's love. He is the king that God promised. And here he is anointed as king. But he's a king who will suffer. A king who was born to die. To die for his people. And this theme of kingship, I just wanted to spend some time thinking about it because it's everywhere in God's word and it's so important for us to to understand it. We think about the, the Christmas story and perhaps we need to keep asking ourselves the question, why would the eternal Son of God leave the glory of heaven to become the baby born in the manger? And when we go to the Christmas story and we'll go there this evening, we discover that he does that to save his people from their sin. He leaves the glory of heaven in order to be God with us. He leaves the glory of heaven and comes to live a life of suffering here on earth because he is God's anointed chosen king, the one promised in the Old Testament, the one, the true and better King David, the one who would lead us in worship, the one who would rule over us in righteousness and justice forever. And we see it in the Old Testament. It's why we, we sang Psalm 2 together to remind ourselves that for the Old Testament believer, their hope was in a Messiah King who God would send. And one thing that Psalm 2 says, it says that this King will be rebelled against. And think about what's happening in the background of John 12. Think about what will happen when Jesus is crucified. Don't we see that rebellion reach a climax? But, but nevertheless, Psalm 2 can declare the only option, the only way of safety, salvation for people is to submit to this son who is the king. Talks about to kiss the son, to submit to him. To use New Testament language, to repent of our sin, to believe in him, to trust him as our Lord. We can also usefully, I think, connect uh, what we learn in the Old Testament with what we see in John's Gospel. Um, So we read together Isaiah 11 and Amos 9, and there we saw imagery uh, saying to us that with the coming of God's true king is the beginning of new creation. Uh, Isaiah pictures um, new creation being like a, a feast on the Lord's mountain, There's pictures of the end to sadness, the end to threat and fear and to distress, the end of death itself and a beginning of life of peace and prosperity and blessing for the people of God. 
And then think about John's gospel. And think about the miracles that John chooses to record for us. Where does he begin? If you remember uh, the first of those seven signs uh, back in John chapter 2, it's the wedding. Cana and Galilee, Jesus turns water into wine. There's the wedding feast. Jesus produces joy. And people saw his glory. Jesus is bringing in the new creation. Think about all of those healing miracles that he performs. What's he doing? He's bringing an end end to sadness and suffering. He's saying, this is what my kingdom is like. This is what world is going to be like for the people who trust in me. And think about the last great sign that we just read. Uh, The context for chapter 12, he raised Lazarus. And he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Jesus is God's king, bringing in God's kingdom. That kingdom that was promised and foretold in the Old Testament is now anticipated in the life of Jesus. And it's the world we all want. A world of perfect love and peace and joy without sadness and sickness and death and destruction and decay. And Jesus is the king who's bringing in that kingdom. And all through John's gospel, we see this as well. The beginning of John's gospel, we we see Jesus meet a man called Nathaniel who becomes one of his disciples. And in verse 29, um, Nathaniel announces that Jesus is the teacher. He is the son of God. And he is the king of Israel. So chapter 1 Jesus is announced as the king of Israel. Then way back, uh, chapter 20, we've gone there so many times. Verse 31, as John explains towards the end of his gospel, why he wrote it. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, God's anointed king, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's there at the beginning, Jesus is king. It's there at the end, Jesus is king. It becomes a frame to see all of John's gospel, to see through this window that John gives us that Jesus is God's promised king. What do we see? We see so often he's rejected, misunderstood, resisted, even while some will worship and believe. From John chapter 12 through to John chapter 19, we find 14 times references to Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as King. We discover that he is the humble and suffering King, the King of glory who will wash his disciples' feet, anticipating that he will die to wash his people from sin. We will see Jesus as the rejected King as we hear the crowds cry, we have no King but Caesar. And then as Jesus is nailed to the cross, there is a sign nailed above his head. This is the king of the Jews. The Bible wants us to know it, and John wants us to know it, that Jesus is God's promised king. He is the one we are to worship. He's the one we are to submit to. And this king, what does he do? He comes to lay down his life for his people. He comes to bring peace between us and God by shedding his blood, dealing with in his own body the sin that separates us from a holy God. He dies so that we might live. And now Jesus is risen and reigned. Now Jesus is building his kingdom in the hearts and lives of his people. And Jesus, the king, will one day return to take us home to be with him forever. Jesus is worthy. And what's crucial crucial for your life and mine. It's the crucial truth that Mary saw. 
is that we need to understand and we need to respond to Jesus as God's promised king so that we would respond with faith and with worship. We spent a lot of time thinking about who is Jesus. Here's Jesus the king, Jesus the king in the Bible. Because it makes sense of our passage. The only thing, in a sense, that makes sense of our passage. We will never understand Mary's worship. We will never understand why she would give everything for Jesus unless we have a clear sense of who Jesus is. Unless we understand that he is that promised king. Unless we understand that he came on a a rescue mission to save people like us. If we don't understand that, then the idea of spending a year's wages on perfume that's gone in a few seconds will seem perhaps shocking, confusing, just as we might be shocked and confused by the idea that people could spend thousands of pounds on a piece of fruit to give to a friend. And likewise, we won't appreciate the tragedy of Judas, because Judas is very much in this story, unless we understand who is it that that Judas chooses to reject and betray unless we understand what it is that Judas lost when he chose to turn his back on Jesus. So let's look to learn some lessons from the worship of Mary. Uh, Let's think about three qualities of Mary's faith and worship for us to value ourselves. The first thing that we can recognize about Mary's worship is that it is humble she pours this perfume on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. You have wonderful portraits of Mary in the Gospels. Three times uh, we discover Jesus, uh, Mary at Jesus' feet. In Luke chapter 10, while Martha's busy serving, getting things ready for dinner, we find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, her master, taking the posture of a disciple, listening and learning. In John chapter 11, Uh, we find Mary in grief and despair, falling at the feet of Jesus, her Lord and Savior and only hope for her brother who had died. And then here in John chapter 12, again we find Mary at the feet of Jesus, taking the posture of the lowest servant. John chooses to focus on on the fact that she's uh, washing his feet to show that humility of Mary, understanding that compared to the great king, she is but a servant, and she wants to honor her king. So there's humility in her worship. There's also a a great sense of gratitude, that sense that she worships gratefully. Mary is acting out of a sense of deep love for Jesus, a deep sense of gratitude, because remember what's Jesus recently done for her? She has her brother back alive and well, uh, raised from the tomb. And more than that, Mary understands who Jesus is. Mary understands that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus has come as the resurrection and the life. And there's a source of, of grateful, joyful worship to understand he is God's promised king and he's come to give eternal life. He's come to give access to his kingdom. And we also see from Mary's worship that it's wholehearted. We see that in the cost, don't we? She's not holding back, but rather she's giving everything she can to honor her king. She doesn't care what others think about the expense, if it seems extravagant or over the top. 
and nor does she care about what is proper. So there's that little detail uh, there in verse 3 where, where Mary's pictured wiping his feet with her hair. And in, in that culture, no uh, Jewish woman would ever let their hair down in public. But, but she cares to honour Jesus more than she cares for her own reputation or for what's proper. She knows this is the right time to honour Jesus, uh, to show uh, how much she values him as Lord and King. I wonder, as we come to this time of year, sometimes December can be a hard time, can't it? It's dark. It's coming towards the end of term. We get tired. I wonder if we find ourselves today, or maybe in this season, tired from worship and service of Jesus. Sometimes it gets like that, doesn't it? It can be hard work to to give of ourselves for others consistently. Perhaps it can be a time when we get frustrated. Perhaps a a lack of gratitude shown for uh, things that we try and do for people. Perhaps uh, frustration that that we feel like we're, we're serving by ourselves and we'd love for others to be able to help. Perhaps we come here today and if we're honest, we're kind of going through the motions of worship because we're really tired and we're done and we feel flat. We can give duty, but we don't have a great sense of joy. I wonder if we feel that today. Not much room for God in our lives. Not much room for God's word in our lives. Not much room for the people of God in our lives. I wonder when we think about Mary's worship, Mary's extravagant. Honestly, does it does it make our worship seem seem small? If that's where we are today, what what should we do? What's the response that we need in order to to return to our first love, to have joy in worship? Well, we need to look to Jesus and the gospel again. We need to remember our King again. To see in Jesus this loving King who came to serve you. To give his life for you. The one who loves the church consistently, sacrificially, holding nothing back from us. To understand he is worthy of all our service. He is worthy of all of our lives. We need to recognize that nothing we give of ourselves, even if we were to give everything, nothing we do, even if we spend all our lives serving, compares with how Jesus loves us and how Jesus serves us. We need to go back to the gospel for our sense of of energy in our worship, to return to Jesus, our King, as our first love for our motivation for worship and service. And to recognize, too, that when our love fails, and it does, if we're honest, our love for Jesus fails at times, we need to understand that as Christians, his love for us never fails. While our service so often can feel cold and feel limited, that's never the way Jesus serves us. We need to understand Jesus never stops praying for us. Jesus never stops sending his spirit to help and to comfort and to encourage us. Jesus never stops holding on to his people in his hands and in his heart. 
So what we need to do is we need to see as Mary saw. To pray for a heart like Mary's that will be humbled and humbled again by God's amazing love and the sending of Jesus. To be thankful for Jesus, the servant king. To be overwhelmed by the sacrifice that he came to make for us. So that our hearts would and would again overflow with worship. But you know, it's not just Mary that we're invited to learn from. John, the gospel writer who loves contrasts, uh, puts Mary and Judas uh, side by side here. Let's read again uh, verse 4 and 5. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who is later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. There are some warnings for us from Judas here. I think the first warning is that of apathy. What's the the, the sense we get of Judas as we read his reaction? Jesus is not worth that big sacrificial worship. Maybe you should avoid the extremes of religious devotion. We need to be wary of that apathy that makes God God seem small, that makes Jesus seem common. There's also a warning too about hypocrisy. Because Judas sounds really good and he sounds really pious, doesn't he? Oh, you should you should have taken that money to should have taken that perfume to the bank and and cashed it in, and then you should have spent the rest of the year uh, caring for the needs of the poor and, and serving them. Sounded good. Perhaps he found people agreeing with him within the crowd, but his true motive, he was a thief. He's what to steal uh, from their money. A dark heart clothed in fine-sounding religious language. And I think when we look at Judas, we have that warning against idolatry uh, once again. There is a real tragedy in Judas' life when we think of all that he saw. He was there with the disciples for three years. He saw every one of the miracles that Jesus performed. He saw time and again the love and mercy of Jesus, the Son of God, God's promised King. Think about all that he heard. Jesus so many times uh, bringing words with authority and power, speaking of himself as God and the only way to God. He heard all of that and he saw all of that. And yet in the end of the day, what did he choose? He chose to put money over Jesus. He chose to sell out his friend for some coinage. Money, not Jesus, had his heart. Judas didn't think Jesus was worthy of all blessing and glory and honor. Judas and the religious leaders, they had the same access to Jesus. They saw and heard many of the same things, but they chose to reject. They chose to despise. They chose to ignore. We need to ask ourselves the question, where where are we today when it comes to King Jesus? How are things with our hearts when it comes to Jesus? Because the question we all need to answer as we think about this passage is, is that one that, that, that we sang earlier, is he worthy? I love that reflection in Revelation 5. Let me encourage you to read Revelation 5 some point this week. It's a 
It's a glorious vision of Jesus, uh, God's chosen king, who's able to bring about all God's purposes in history, receiving uh, all the worship of heaven. And the angels are singing. He is worthy of all that blessing and honor and glory. Is that a song we can honestly sing from our hearts? Do we think he's worthy of the first place in our lives? And does it show? Are we submitting today to his good and loving rule? Are we ready to be loyal to him, to follow his commands? Because how you and I answer, well, it matters for today, but it matters for all eternity. We have a really stark warning uh, in the Bible from the life of Judas, a warning about, about, as it were, keeping Jesus at arm length, arm's length, not becoming too attached to him, but rather being attached to money, about being happy with a religious show, with an unchanged heart, about placing other people or things or money over King Jesus. If that's where we find ourselves today, pray that God would rescue you from that cold heart eh, towards Jesus, your King, so that rather you would see him and you would want to submit to him. But we learn too from Mary, don't we, that wonderful, beautiful picture of worship. This holding nothing back, sacrificial, loving gift fit for God's King. May God give to each of us eyes like Mary that recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Hearts like Mary that would truly worship. Is he worthy? To answer that question, look to Jesus this Christmas. I consider again the wonderful story of Jesus coming, leaving the glory of heaven to become one of us. Think of the message of Easter that Jesus dies as a, a loving sacrifice, a loving sacrifice for our unbelief, for our lack of love, for our sin. He takes it and he pays for it. Think about Easter Sunday, Jesus risen so we might live. Think about Jesus the King who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May the song of all our hearts be, He is worthy. Let's pray briefly. Lord God, we thank you for your words. And we thank you for the wonderful devotion and worship of Mary. Thank you for her humility, for her gratitude for her wholehearted, loving sacrifice, because she knew Jesus was her King and her Savior and her Lord. Lord, may you give us hearts like Mary that are ready uh, to love and to serve and to give in response to all that you have done for us in Jesus. Lord, please save us from being like Judas, from being cold-hearted, from being half-hearted and apathetic, for putting other things or other people ahead of Jesus as Lord and King. Lord, may we all be able to say from the bottom of our hearts, he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Please help us by your spirit to see him more and more clearly so that we might love him more and more deeply. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.